Well, we're in the third week of our Afterlife series. Uh, Pastor Chad has talked to us about the reality of the soul, and he said, don't let the afterlife be an afterthought. And then last week, we talked about the reality of heaven, that heaven is a home for the future, and it's a hope for the present. Next week's going to be kind of fun. We're going to have a, a panel. We've been receiving questions from you about the afterlife. And so we're going to try to field those questions. So it'll be a little bit of a different kind of message next week with Josh Stone, myself, Chad, and Leanne Brisbane here trying to answer some of your questions. Today, we're talking about the reality of hell. I got to say, it's been hard for me to read and listen and think and prepare so I could talk with you today about this topic of hell. I mean, who wants to talk about something that is so horrifying? This preparation time has been a real struggle for me. Why is that? Well, because hell is one of our faith's most offensive teachings. And I understand why people resist the very idea of hell. I don't like it. I think about how some people I have known and care for might actually be experiencing that right now. And maybe you kind of want to minimize the whole idea of divine judgment yourself. I hear things like this, um, a loving God would not send people to an eternal hell. How could a good God send good people to hell? Or you hear things like this, a loving God cannot be a judging God. I mean, how could God be full of love and wrath at the same time? I mean, I accept the idea of a loving and forgiving God. I just can't accept the fact that God would judge somebody forever. Or the very idea of people experiencing hell for all eternity is cruel and excessive. I mean, why would God inflict infinite punishment for finite sins? One CBCer wrote to me this, It's cool with me if Satan gets tortured forever and ever, but it's very unsettling that a malnourished third world child dies from disease and has to go to hell because they never heard about Jesus. Another wrote this, a few months ago I read an article about a young woman who had flame accelerant poured down her nose and throat and then was set on fire walking down the highway burning alive. And when I read that I thought the person who did that is the sickest, most evil being on the planet. And seconds later I realized that that's exactly what I've been taught that God does, but forever and ever. It chills me to the core. I'm certain that my capacity for compassion is not greater than God's, but I'm struggling with this idea. So this whole topic makes us all uncomfortable. And that's why we try to soften the idea of hell. Some of us just go, there is no hell. I'm not going to believe in it at all. Others have invented a non-biblical idea of a purgatory, a place where people can go and they can pay off their sins and then they go to heaven. Or we've come up with the idea that heaven and hell exist in the here and now. If you wrong someone, then you've kind of created your own consequences. You've created your own hell on this life, in this planet. But, but none of that is taught anywhere in the Bible. And the problem is this. When we try to tone down the idea of hell, we are adding to or taking away from the words of Jesus himself. So how do we respond to the people who say that divine judgment and hell are Christianity's most offensive teachings? 
Well, today I want us to let Jesus teach us about hell. So open your Bibles to Luke chapter 13. We'll start with verse 22. The great British professor and writer C.S. Lewis once wrote about hell. There is no doctrine which I would more willingly remove from Christianity than this if it lay in my power. But it has the full support of Scripture and specially of our Lord's own words. I mean, really? Jesus talked about hell? Really? I mean, based on everything we know about Jesus, he's so loving, so kind, so merciful, so forgiving, we'd expect Jesus to kind of maximize heaven and minimize hell. Because, because let's face it, we just want Jesus to have a friendly tone all the time. We want a Jesus in whom there is really no anger or wrath or judgment. So surely Jesus is going to highlight the love of God and lowlight the wrath of God when he talks about Judgment Day, right? Well, if you just read what Jesus says about hell, as if you've read it for the very first time, you're going to find that his words are stronger and more straightforward than most of us would like. So let's dive in. Luke chapter 13, verse 22. It talks about Jesus. He went on his way through towns and villages, teaching and journeying toward Jerusalem. And someone said to him, Lord, will those who are saved be few? Now, the Jewish religious leaders in Jesus' day taught that only a few would be saved. Only Jews would be eternally saved. And the only Jews that would be eternally saved were the ones that tried the hardest, did the most, and kept the rules the best. So they're asking, are these religious leaders right in saying only a few will be saved? A few like them will be saved? And here's Jesus' response in verse 24. He said to them, Strive to enter through the narrow door. For many, I tell you, will seek to enter and will not be able. When once the master of the house has risen and shut the door, and you begin to stand outside and knock at the door, saying, Lord, open to us. Then he will answer to you, I do not know where you come from. So he says, yeah, the way to be saved is narrow. But a lot of you religious leaders who think you're good to go, you're going to be on the outside. Verse 26, then you will begin to say, we ate and drank in your presence, and you taught in our streets. Now, what's happening? Well, those that are on the outside are negotiating now. I mean, according to those who believe there are second chances after death, then Jesus should reconsider, right? Because they're negotiating. I mean, he would need to answer, oh, you're right. Come on in. I mean, that's what he has to say, right? He's Jesus. I mean, any other response would be heartless and unloving and unjust. I mean, could Jesus actually say, sorry, the door's locked. If you'd have been here earlier, I could have done something, but now it's too late. I mean, could Jesus actually say that? Yes, he could. Look at verse 27. But he will say, I tell you, I do not know where you come from. Depart from me, all you workers of evil. Now he describes hell. In that place... There will be weeping and gnashing of teeth when you see Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all the prophets in the kingdom of God, but you yourselves are cast out. So the people that think they're in because of their nationality and because of their religious performance are not in. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the patriarchs of the Jewish people, they got in by grace through faith. 
but the current crop of self-righteous religious leaders are cast out. And then Jesus says something that I think is kind of stunning, especially to a Jewish crowd. Look at this, verse 29. And people will come from east and west and from north and south and recline at table in the kingdom of God. And behold, some who are last will be first and some who are first will be last. And I love this about Jesus because he's opening the door to the last and the least and the lost, to the people from the east and the west, from places like China and Spain, and from the north and the south, from places like Russia and Africa. He's saying here salvation isn't just for the Jews, it's for the last and the least. And guess what? That's good news for us. Good news. Now, did you catch what Jesus says about hell here? He goes, you won't be able to enter. You're going to be outside. You'll be cast out. So depart from me to a place where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. I mean, seriously, for all eternity, weeping and gnashing of teeth? I mean, if you read stories like this, like you've just read it for the very first time, we think, wow, Jesus is pretty hardcore. I mean, we would open the door at any time to anyone. I mean, if they start negotiating, okay, come on in. But Jesus won't do it. He gives no hope that the door will reopen. I mean, if Jesus believed in second chances for people that reject him in this life, then this story is really misleading. And so how scary is this for people who find themselves on the wrong side of the door? Jesus tells this story to impact our souls. He says there will be people on the outside of the kingdom of God in a place called hell. So some of you might remember what Pastor Chad has told us many times. Heaven is not the default destination. Hell is. Hell is. We've all sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Without holiness, no one will see the Lord. That's Hebrews 12, 14. So no one will enter into the presence of a holy God unless we're radically changed, unless we're born again, unless we're made never the same. Until our sin problem is resolved, hell is the default destination. And that should make some of us in the room right now terrified. You say, well, that's not fair. Oh, wait, time out. God gives us second chances, third, fourth, fifth, and hundredth chances virtually every day of our lives. You know, a great century, first century leading thinker, the Apostle Paul, he wrote this in Romans 1, that God has revealed himself to us in creation and in our conscience. So, he says, all people are without excuse. If people respond to God and want to know more about God, I believe that He will send them further revelation of Himself through missionaries, through visions, through dreams, or whatever other means He chooses. Every breath we have is an opportunity to respond. And if people don't respond before death, then it's too late. As you read through the Gospels, we find Jesus saying some very terrifying things about judgment. Let me just give you a few examples. Matthew 25, verse 30, "...and cast the worthless servant into the outer darkness." Matthew 25, 41, "...he will say to those on his left, "'Depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire.'" Matthew 25, 46, "...these will go away into eternal 
punishment. And then in Mark chapter 9, verse 43, if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It's better for you to enter life crippled than with two hands to go to hell to the unquenchable fire. Mark chapter 9, verse 47, and if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. It's better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into hell where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. I mean, you read these passages and you go, Jesus is not talking about some kind of a hell on earth, that our suffering here is our hell. He's talking about the afterlife in a place called hell. So if you put all this together, just think, how did Jesus describe hell? He describes it as a place of weeping. That's deep, deep sorrow. He talks about it as a place where there will be gnashing of teeth. That is agonizing regret. He talks about it as a place of outer darkness. This is isolation. This is separation from light, from good, from relationships. He talks about it as an eternal fire, an unquenchable fire. This is disintegration, eternal punishment where the worm does not die. That's an internal gnawing anguish forever. Now, most Bible scholars would look at this description here and they would say, these are figures of speech. These are all metaphorical ways of describing an unimaginable nightmare for all eternity. But remember, we use metaphors to describe realities that are beyond description or comprehension. In other words, eternal fire, unquenchable fire, that means something worse than we can imagine or even talk about. I mean, we learned last week that the language we use to describe heaven is inadequate. Well, the same thing is true about hell. So weeping and gnashing of teeth and unquenchable fire, it's all true. These are the words of Jesus. And the reality is worse than the image. So clearly Jesus, who I would say is the most kind, the most compassionate, the most sacrificial, the most servant-hearted, the most loving person that ever lived, clearly Jesus believed that a loving God could send people to an eternal hell. That a loving God could also be a judging God. And that the very idea of people experiencing hell for all eternity must not therefore be cruel and excessive. He uses this terrifying language to talk about hell. Why? He loves us. And he's warning us. He's using the strong language to stir in us a fear that would make us take hell seriously and want to avoid it at all costs and that would make us want to run to Jesus for safety and relationship. Now, I read the words of Jesus and I go, okay, 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 I, I still have questions though. So I've wrestled with this topic over the last several weeks and I've uncovered some ideas that have just helped me process this difficult truth, and maybe it would help you too. Let me give you uh, five reasons that I think it's reasonable to believe in hell. One, hell is an answer to our longing for justice. Some of you in this room, I've heard stories. You, you've been deeply wronged, and the people who have wronged you never paid. And there's something inside you that just longs for justice. And the Bible says that our souls, we talked about this in week one, go on forever, either in heaven or hell. And it's that future that brings about perfect justice. If you're here and you're tired of all the evil and corruption in the world, and if you long for a world where such things don't exist, then you're longing for a heaven 
without evil. And if we're all going to get there, it means that God's either going to have to force everyone to repent or that God's going to contain the evil somehow. Well, He doesn't force everybody to come to Christ. So that means He's going to have to contain evil. And that's hell. Hell exists because God has committed Himself to solving the problem of evil. Hell is a place where evil gets punished. And that's why we could even say that hell is morally good because a good God must punish evil. So the just punishment of sin, that's a good thing. To argue against hell is really to argue against justice. There will be justice for all. God will not allow injustice to go on forever. He's going to bring justice. So hell is God's answer to his heart for justice. Second reason it's reasonable to believe in hell. Hell is God giving people what they want. Now, many people stumble over the idea of God sending people to hell. But there's a very real sense that people send themselves to hell because being away from the presence of God is actually what they want. Romans chapter 1, verse 24, it says, God gives people up to their own desires. So all God does in the end is give them what they want most, including freedom from himself. C.S. Lewis said this, There are only two kinds of people, those who say, Thy will be done to God, to those who, to whom God in the end says, Thy will be done. All that are in hell, choose it. And without that self-choice, it wouldn't be hell. See, if we say to God, thy will be done, that's heaven. And if God says to us, okay, thy will be done, that's hell. You know, we've been using a drawing here to kind of help us talk about God's design, our brokenness, and his solution. You know, when God made everything, he made it all really good. Everything was, was perfect. But we exist now in a world of brokenness. We see all kinds of hurt and pain and sorrow and difficulty around us. How do we get from this perfect world to a world that's filled with brokenness? Well, you know, the Bible word for that is our sin. And when we realize that we're in a world of brokenness, we try to fix our brokenness in all kinds of broken ways. I might try religion to fix my brokenness. I might try a relationship to fix my brokenness. I might try a career to fix my brokenness. I might try drugs and alcohol and entertainment. We have all these ways to try to fix our brokenness. But it all moves us further and further away from God. And God says, I'm going to provide a solution for you, and that's going to be the gospel of Jesus. He's going to die on the cross. He's going to pay for your sin. And if you will repent and believe, then you can reconnect, recover, um, and pursue God's design for your life. All right, so we use this to talk to people about how to have new life in Christ. But here's, here's what hell is. God says, if you don't want to come this way, and if you want to continue to go your own way in life, then this is hell. Go your way. 
It's as though God's saying, you don't want me? Okay, I'm not going to make you have me. You just don't get me for all eternity. And so there's a very real sense that hell is God giving people what they want. Let me give you a third reason why it's reasonable to believe in hell. Hell exists not in spite of God's love, but because of God's love. So people say, well, how can you believe in a God that's both forgiving and full of wrath? Well, think about it. All loving people are sometimes filled with wrath. And this wrath is not in spite of their love, it's because of their love. I mean, if you love a child and you see that child doing something that's going to hurt the child, you get angry with that. When we're filled with righteous indignation, it means we have a settled opposition to what destroys the people that we love. And that's wrath. It's not crankiness. It's not out-of-control temper. I mean, if you've got an addictive friend, you're angry because of what he's doing to himself. You're angry because of his self-centeredness. And you reach a point where you might say, okay, go your own way. Go ahead and do what you want. Becky Pippert wrote this. She said, anger isn't the opposite of love. Hate is. And the final form of hate is indifference. See, God's wrath is not a cranky explosion, but his settled opposition to the cancer which is eating out the insides of the human race that he loves with his whole being. See, God's wrath flows because he loves and delights in his creation. He's angry at evil and injustice because it destroys people, and ultimately he's going to create a place to protect his people from evil. Let me give you a fourth reason why I think it's reasonable to believe in hell. Hell can actually foster a more non-violent world. If you want a more peaceful world, then I encourage you to believe in a God of justice because that means you can leave things in His hands. He will right all the wrongs, and that fact makes Him worthy of our worship. You know, if you don't believe that God will someday bring about justice in the end, then that might prompt you to go take things into your own hands. I'm going to make somebody pay. Miroslav Volf wrote this, If God were not angry at injustice and deception and did not make a final end to violence, he would not be worthy of worship. And it's his opposition to evil that allows us to be nonviolent people. So when we get hurt or when someone we love is hurt, it's difficult not to pick up the sword and go get them. And if you don't think there's a judgment day, then you're going to want to retaliate. But if you do think there's a judgment day, you're going to hold back. See, the belief that there's a judgment day fuels the whole idea of nonviolence. Now, I admit that this... Even after several weeks of study on this topic, there's still a tension in me. And I've tried to share with you some of the answers to some of my struggles. But the main reason that I believe in hell is because I believe in Jesus. You see, this fifth reason why it's reasonable to believe in hell is this one. The one who loves most and knows best believed in hell. Jesus talked about hell and judgment a lot So whether it's logical, rational, or sensitive, if the one who came to this planet and pulled off his own death and resurrection, if that person believed in hell, 
then I'm just going to have to go with him. If Jesus says there's a hell and a judgment, then there is. He believes it, and that just sort of settles it for me. I mean, think about it. If you can't trust Jesus in his teaching about hell, then why would you trust anything that he has to say, including his offer of heaven? We might think we're too loving to believe in hell, but, but are you more loving than Jesus? The one who loved you so much that he laid down his life for you? I mean, when it comes to hell, do we actually know better than Jesus knows? Listen, I don't like the idea of hell, but just because I don't like it doesn't make it wrong or unjust. All right, so why would we spend a whole message on the topic of hell? Well, it's because we want to honor God. We want to be faithful to represent Him in how He presents Himself. I don't understand completely, but I, I know that he knows best. Everything he does, including hell, is right, it's good, it's wise, it's holy, because everything that he does is perfect. So you know what? We don't have to cover for God. We don't have to explain God. We don't have to... He, he's not like going, boy, I hope Pastor Rick really makes a good case for hell today because... Uh, you know, I, I'm, I'm needing that. No. Here's what he says. Isaiah 55, 8 and 9. My, my thoughts are not your thoughts. Neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts higher than your thoughts. Think about it. God isn't just like slightly smarter than we are. He's infinitely more knowledgeable, more wise, and more right. I mean, if we just knew a fraction of what God knows, we would realize hell is just and hell is right. So I just want to say to us, we don't need to be embarrassed about hell. We don't have to apologize about God and His eternal plan of justice. It's time for us to stop apologizing for God and start apologizing to God. I ran across a prayer in a book by Francis Chan. Let me just read it to you. Please forgive me, Lord, for wanting to erase all the things in Scripture that don't sit well with me. Forgive me for trying to hide some of your actions to make you more palatable to the world. Forgive me for trying to make you fit my standards of justice and goodness and love. You're God. You're good. I don't always understand you, but I love you. Thank you for who you are. I read that and I go... Amen. I need to pray that. See, God will do what's just and right. He's the source of justice and love. He knows what we all deserve, so we can trust Him. We don't have to figure out His justice. He's not wringing His hands, wondering, is my plan morally right? Because it's His plan, it is morally right. We just have to be people that bow the knee and trust. All right, so, so what's the so what? Let me wrap this up today by encouraging you to consider four quick responses. First, holiness. The whole idea of hell ought to make us holy people. Luke chapter 12, verse 4, I tell you, my friends, this is Jesus talking, do not fear those who kill the body and after that have nothing more that they can do. But I will warn you whom to fear. Fear him who, after he has killed, has authority to cast into hell. I mean, we ought to revere God. 
We ought to live for and submit to our holy God. I was talking with a guy in the foyer out there, and he came out and he said, man, God's really been dealing with me about my addiction to pornography. Thank you for reminding me that I need to fear God and be holy. We ought to live for and submit to our holy God. So what holiness? So what gratitude? Gratitude. Most people in prison, they don't think they belong there, right? Many of us can't imagine that we would deserve hell. But if we understand the righteousness and the holiness and the purity of God, and if we understand that He must punish sin, then we begin to grasp when we see our wickedness and our evil and our selfishness in our hearts, I do deserve hell. And then when I realize that Jesus has given me a ticket out, I begin to thank and praise him for his grace at a much deeper level. Jesus Christ died and rose again. Why? To glorify his Father by displaying both perfect love and holy justice in one place on the cross, and that delivers us from a very real and eternal hell. And because he's delivered us from hell, his work on the cross is heroic and worthy of the highest worship and praise and gratitude. So what? Holiness. So what? Gratitude. So what? Urgency. Unless they come to Christ, some of the people that we know and love are headed to hell. Some of us are married to people headed to hell. Some of us have moms and dads and sons and daughters and brothers and sisters and coworkers and friends that are headed to hell. And it ought to create a sense of urgency in our lives. Larry Osborne said this, Life is too short and hell is too hot to just play church. And that's what some of us are doing. Showing up, putting in our time, going home. I'll be back again next week. C.H. Spurgeon wrote this, If sinners will be damned, at least let them leap to hell over our bodies And if they will perish, let them perish with our arms about their knees. If hell must be filled, at least let it be filled in the teeth of our exertions and let not one go there unwarned or unprayed for. We need to ask God to impress the teachings of Jesus about hell onto our hearts heart so deeply that it just makes us more passionate, that it reconfigures the way we see people around us, the way we live before people, and the way we talk to them. Urgency. And then finally, salvation. In Matthew chapter 7, Jesus gives us what I think could be the most terrifying words about hell in all the Bible. He says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. And on that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. I mean, do you really understand what's happening here? Jesus is saying these are people that think are sure they're going to heaven, but they're not. Many, Jesus says, think they're good to go. 
And this here is the last day. No second chances. So fast forward. You're there. How is Jesus going to respond to your laundry list of religious activities? You know, your church attendance, your money given, your prayers prayed, your good deeds done. What's he going to say? Is he going to say, depart from me because I never knew you? The issue is, do you know Jesus? Does he know you? Really? I mean, do you truly have an intimate, personal relationship with Jesus Christ? That's why he came. In John chapter 3, he says this, Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. I I love this. Jesus has come for everyone, for all people. And as we saw in the story in Luke 13, people will come from the east and the west and the north and the south. Here's the idea. Whoever wants to come can come. The door's open for everybody, for anyone. Everybody's invited, and that means you. You're invited. No one has to go to hell. Anyone can go to heaven. If we'll turn from our sins and put our faith in Jesus for salvation, we'll be saved. Because he doesn't want to condemn. He wants to save. That's why he came. Maybe you're here and you're still struggling with the very idea of hell. And we got to tell you, you know what? You are welcome here with all your doubts and struggles and questions. But I just have to ask, what is it that you want God to do? Well, uh, I want God to wipe away everybody's sins. I, I want God to give everybody a fresh start. I want him to give people a new life. I want God to do something that is radically gracious and radically merciful. And I would say to you, that's exactly what God did. That's what he's done on the cross in Christ And that's why Jesus can say, I'm not willing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. And that means you, will you come to Christ today? I mean, maybe you're here and you're going, I don't know that I know that I know that I'm saved and headed to heaven. I want to introduce you to the prayer. It's not a magic prayer, but as I wrestled this week, I kind of composed this prayer that might express the desire of your heart. Heavenly Father, as difficult as it is to think about, I want to thank you for your justice. I don't understand it all, but I want to be ready for the judgment day. I want to be with you and your kingdom forever. I need forgiveness. I need to know Christ. So today I receive Jesus as my personal Savior and Lord. I turn from my sin, put my trust in him. Thank you that Jesus paid the penalty for my sins and suffered in my place. Now help me now live for you. He's already taken the hell if you'll come to Christ. You know, when you came in, you sat down in a chair, and the chair in front of you are a couple of cards. One is called New Life 1024, and it's a place for you to write down the names of 10 people that you're burdened about. And maybe today you're going, you know what? I've already filled one of these out, but God's burdened my heart for 10 more. Or maybe you've not given us 10 names You know, uh, I just want to encourage you, write the names of people down that maybe God has put into your heart and mind that you're more burdened about today than you were before. And then on your way out, 
take it to the prayer room or give it to one of the ushers. And we will post your names. I love going into that prayer room, and I stand there and I pray for card after card after card. And I'm not the only one that does that. And so invite others to pray with you for people that you know that you don't want to go to hell. Second thing I'd encourage you, if you're here, and this prayer expresses the desire of your heart, we have a decision card. I would encourage you to fill it out and let us know that you've made a decision to make Christ your Lord and Savior. We would like to help you with next steps. We're going to end this service a little different. No music. We just want you to sit with this information and talk to God about it. Maybe for you, it's this gratitude piece. Thank you, Jesus, that I don't have to go to hell because I've put my faith in you. And I want to worship you more deeply than ever. Maybe for you, it's this urgency piece. I'm not urgent enough about it. And I've got family members and friends. They need to know. Help me tell them. Maybe for you, it's a holiness piece. I've been excusing my sin. It's not okay. And maybe for you, we're going to leave the prayer on the screen. Maybe that's the prayer you need to pray this morning. Lord, let our church do business with you. And when we're done, in just a few minutes, help us to slip out quietly and let this topic sit on our souls with the weight that it needs. In Jesus' name.